0: hello and welcome to the reset a mental health podcast without all the bollocks i'm sam delaney my guest this week is the therapist and addiction expert chip Sommers. chip is a bit of a legend in his field. I first heard about him through reading Russell Brand's books on addiction and recovery. Since then I've heard and read about Chip's uncanny ability of helping all sorts of addicts. He's often spoken about in hushed tones by patients and fellow mental health professionals alike. So I was really excited to talk to him and find out what all the fuss was about. Talking with Chip was a pleasure and a privilege. I spent the whole of this chat listening to his words with a big smile on my face as he told me his own personal story of addiction, how he got better, and why he decided to use that experience to help others. I think this is a seriously fascinating conversation. I think anyone with an interest in addiction and recovery will find it really useful. I hope you enjoy listening. Chip, welcome to The Reset.
1: Thank you. Welcome. Glad to be here.
0: It's a real pleasure to have you here. I'd like to start out by asking you more about um, your your own life. Um, and your personal struggles with addiction when you were younger that i i guess led you into this this sort of work can you tell me a bit about that
1: yeah sure uh i mean now my kind of life is divided into sort of three parts really there's the my up till about 17 which was In many ways, very privileged, uh, public school, all that sort of thing, but unfortunately included an incredibly dysfunctional family. And uh, I think like quite a lot of people, I think from that kind of background, everything looks very good on the outside, but inside it was incredibly dysfunctional. There was neglect, sexual abuse the whole kind of nine yards and i had a brother who was mentally ill and nobody talked about it and he was it was just very very dysfunctional behind a very glossy exterior sent away to boarding school at six and a half again abused there by the teachers uh feeling very lonely and then going through that whole kind of educational system, feeling disconnected and going home to disconnection. And and that kind of was the first third of my life until right, I was about 17, came to London uh, at the perfect time, really, uh, at a very historic time, sort of during the summer of love and demonstrations and, uh, and a, a time I'm really glad to have experienced, really. I was really Now, looking back, I'm really glad that I was part of that. And I guess, like many people, the first few years, maybe three, maybe three years of my addiction were good. You know, it was fun. It was exciting. It was interesting. It was, it was all right, you know, and it was great. And it made me feel as if I belonged. It dealt with all my kind of feelings of insecurity and. And all those kind of uncomfortable feelings that I had just disappeared, you know, instantly. And, uh, you know, very stereotypically, after about three years, things started to go wrong. Money ran out. Consequences got bigger and bigger. And I went from being really with quite a, I guess, I could have followed a very typical career path to then 20 years of addiction which included prison uh it included homelessness it included everything and uh you know my parents were my background was of no help to me at all um they i don't think through any kind of guidance they took a very very hard line and uh literally slammed the door in my face and you know and and but I didn't really want to be there anyway but I mean so it was it was a very it was 20 years of addiction three years at the beginning where it was fun and exciting and the other 17 were a daily struggle to kind of just cope with the addiction and the consequences of that and it got incredibly lonely and incredibly tiresome and eventually I was really fortunate enough to have somebody who I'd used with um, come round to my house and sort of say, look, there is another way, you know, and uh, and that intrigued me. It didn't give me a kind of, it wasn't like an a momentary epiphany. It wasn't like that, it, but it intrigued me and it, it challenged my thinking because in those days, and I guess to a certain extent. But the old days, it was once a junkie, always a junkie, and, and, and that was the attitude of the medical profession, It was the attitude of psychiatrists, it was the attitude of drug workers, uh, and there was no possibility of hope or change. And then round about the early 80s, N.A. started, uh, rehabs began to open. There were a couple of rehabs in the in the West Country, and so suddenly the idea of, actually getting better from addiction became a possibility, which it had never been before. And that sort of serendipity timing worked really well for me. And, again, I was fortunate enough because rehabs were in a nascent, and they were kind of – I got in for free, which is unheard of nowadays. You know, you're just not going to do that nowadays. I got in and – Having spent six months wondering whether or not I wanted to stop using or not, I don't know I don't know what happened, but within about three days of being in this rehab, I thought, Do you know what? I can see that the road ahead of me looks pretty bumpy. It looks like it's going to be problematic at times, but if I turn around and look the other way, that looks awful, and I don't want to go back there. So I kind of very early on in my rehab stay made a decision, I'm going to try this and and it, and, that, and that worked for me and that worked yeah but it was <clears throat> it was a very difficult time the using was a very difficult time a very uh, you know we can all i think we a lot of addicts have a, a, a habit of kind of picking out m- moments from their using that were kind of exciting or fun or dramatic And building their kind of life story around that to the exclusion of weeks and months and years of loneliness, despair, kind of feeling left out of things, feeling lost. And I think that's what I tend to try and focus on. I try not to do that kind of euphoric recall of, oh, do you remember when we did this and that and there were so many drugs around and all that happened? I tried to really focus on the fact that actually for most of the time I was using, it was a very lonely experience and very damaging and destructive to myself and others.
0: What were you addicted to?
1: Anything. anything. The idea of a drug of choice is a very bizarre concept to me because it's like, you know, if I was sitting around, I've got some amphetamine here, I wouldn't go, oh, no, no, it's not my drug of choice. I think I'll pass on that one. I'd go, yeah, I'll have it, thanks. (laughs) I was what they call a garbage head. I would have anything, if it could go in a syringe, it was going in me, and and that was it, you know. And, yeah, I, I don't think I ever turned a drug down. I mean, that would just be... What a strange concept that is, to turn a drug down. You know, it's like, of course I didn't. So it was whatever was available, that's what I was addicted to. And, of course, obviously with certain drugs, like the opiates and heroin, of which there was a lot in the 70s, um, you know, that would be the one I got involved in. And then, you know, got a methadone script, had that for 12 years. And, yeah, so, but I'd be anything, anything. As long as, it, as long as it got me as, as disconnected from reality as possible, that was good enough for me. And had there been a number of false starts,
0: what was it that when, when, you know, your friend came to you and said that there was another way, it can't have been the first time that people had suggested to you or that you had had the thought of getting clean. Uh, what, what, what was different about that time?
1: Um, well, you're right, there had, been, uh, there had been a very bizarre three months in a Scientology clinic, um, yeah. which I would rather pass over and forget about, but that was, I had three months then. I had 15 months when I was in prison. I didn't use in prison. Um, so that was another period of time, but, I mean, obviously I used as soon as I came out. What was different was I knew this guy. I knew him, and I knew he had been as bad as I had been we'd both lived in a squat together off the off the harrow road we i knew exactly how bad he had been and he looked amazing and that was what i thought oh my god because i'd never seen that you didn't see people in recovery you didn't see people who had changed it just didn't exist so it was it was an extraordinary thing to see this guy who had been as messed up as i was Looking great. He had a car outside that worked, for God's sake. You know, he was, he looked clean. He had a sparkle in his eye. And it was that that got, uh, that really piqued my interest. I thought, oh my, what, how the hell did you do that? And, you know, his answer was incredibly simple. I said, I did say, what the hell did you do? And he said, I stopped using. And that, it was like he had given me the clue to quantum science. You know, it was like, oh, my God, you're you're smart. You know, you stopped using because I'd never, I would change drugs. I would, you know, go have a spell on amphetamines and then have a spell on opiates and then have a spell on barbiturates and then have a spell on violin, whatever. But the idea of stopping altogether was just alien. So, but seeing him and knowing where he had been, because I'd be, I'd sat in lots in front of lots of people, psychiatrists and drug workers, and I always used to think, "You haven't got a clue what my life is like. You just haven't got a clue." But he did, and so he was the one that piqued my interest and made me kind of want to challenge my own thinking. Yeah,
0: it's so true that not meeting people you think you can relate to. Is is almost the the most powerful thing. Was for me seeing people. who I think oh they they actually live in the same culture I do, yeah. and and therefore they get it. Because so many professionals seem to yeah they just seem alien. And you think well of course they don't understand. They mean well, but their advice just simply doesn't apply to the realities of my life. Yeah, I, I sort of feel that there's someone out there for everyone. You're always you'll you'll meet someone eventually. Yes. Who you think oh they had the life just like mine and they got better.
1: Yes, and that's the beauty nowadays of podcasts like this and, and, and the, the kind of the way that the whole discussion around recovery has become so much part of the kind of fabric uh, that people can get to hear. Uh, oh, my God, that man's telling a story or that woman is telling a story just like mine. And that is what's encouraging and building the kind of recovery movement so that there are more people. So, you know, you now have celebrities and famous people say, I'm in recovery, which is like unbelievable to somebody of my age who just, you know, that concept was like just strange that people would be open about it. And it, I mean, and, and, you know, I've run rehabs and, and, and and I've known that whenever a celebrity has kind of come out and said, I'm in recovery, the referrals would, you'd get a huge spike in referrals because people would be inspired by that. And I think having a lot of people around nowadays who are able to pass on the message of that there is an alternative way to addiction has made a big difference. And it's, it's made the, you know, it's made the whole conversation about addiction much more commonplace. And we're finding out a lot more about it, thankfully.
0: It's changed so rapidly, so quickly. And it must be to you because you've been involved in this world for so long. Um, It must be so heartening. I mean, The first time I heard your name was um, at least, well, I guess maybe 12 years ago when Russell Brand was um, Uh very publicly talking about, you know, the help you'd given him. And that seemed then, like you say, even then, about 12 years ago when I was still using, it seemed kind of really quite amazing that he was being so open about... His addictions, but also the, the ins and outs of how he'd got over it and naming someone like your, yourself. Yeah. Because I thought, oh, this is the sort of stuff that goes on behind the scenes and it's just like really, really secretive. Now, I mean, obviously, I, I feel like he was a bit of a pi- pioneer in that sense. And, but now that you're right, I mean, even I've been sober seven years and even in those seven years, it sort of changed so dramatically. The first couple of years, I was a bit quiet and private about what I'd gone through and how I was coping with it. Mm. Now I feel that it's, it must be, and I don't want to say easier, but it's so, there's so much more out there if someone's struggling and looking for solutions, isn't there? Because some people are so much more brave. The shame has been removed a lot, hasn't it?
1: The the shame has been removed a lot now and people understand it much more now as uh, an illness Uh, And they don't consider it to be kind of a weakness, which, you know, earlier in the the 30s and 40s, you know, if you had an addiction problem, you were a pariah and you were put in a mental asylum and you were kind of now there is a much more a much bigger acceptance that this is something. But, you know, I, I agree with you completely. I think that the whole discussion, what is available to people in the form of podcasts and online things like that. Uh, is very good, and I'm really glad. You know, I love the 12-step movement. I am personally find it a, a very useful tool. But when I first came around 1984 or 1983, there was a tremendous, do not tell anybody about this. Yeah. Do not say a word about this. You know, whatever the tradition is about, you know, no publicity and stuff like that. At the level of press, radio, but that meant it kept it a secret. And what I love nowadays is that people aren't keeping it a secret and they are talking about it. And, you know, I understand why that particular tradition was put in place in the very, very early days when they were trying to get the, the 12-step movement established, but it doesn't apply any longer. Everybody accepts it's a, it's around and, it, and there are other alternative helps. However... I was really lucky. I caught that rehab movement at the beginning in in the early, you know, the first one was about 1980, I think, and I got into treatment uh, in 1984. And then there was a real groundswell of kind of enthusiasm, not just from people in addiction, but government as well, about the idea of kind of putting money into rehabs and getting people abstinent, the whole idea of abstinence. And then... Then that kind of turned. There was a there was a real enthusiasm. Then it kind of turned, and and you know, populist newspapers like the Daily Mail got hold of the fact that actually not everybody did get well when they went through rehab, and we were spending all this money on these addicts, and so many of them were failing, and 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 that kind of started to put a bit of a, 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 a downer on things. And we've now unfortunately got to the situation whereby. Nobody. If you haven't got money, you ain't going to rehab. Mm. You know, it, it's it, it's really turned. And uh, you know, the fact that the truth of the matter is, if you go to your local drug service, which will be pretty poor, uh, pretty poor, really, um, they can they can cope with people with opiate problems. They can give you a substitute. Uh, but you know, nowadays there are so many drugs. There, you know, kind of you know, uh, things like ketamine and 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 and, and sort of uh, legal highs and things like that. They can't give you an alternative for that, so they're lost and they're out of their depth. They haven't got the experience. They don't, and it's a very fast-moving world. But the thing that really bothers me is that yes, there is a lot of public availability of knowledge and and acceptance about addiction, but actually. That doesn't relate to there being a vast amount of help. Because if you've got a drug problem, you need detox probably. Certainly, if you've got an alcohol problem or drug, you need a detox. I mean, it's obviously, some drugs like coke and crack, you don't actually need a detox. You can just, you know, feel pretty tired for a few days and eat a lot. But you know, there's there's no physical kind of, you're not going to have a withdrawal. Um, and you know all addicts ex- do we do make a bit of a fuss about withdrawal we do you know we are you know we you know we're, we always we're always dying when we're in withdrawal mm-hmm. until, until somebody you know we're lying on the sofa oh man i didn't use for hours but if somebody said to me there was some gear across town in Battersea i'd be off that sofa in two seconds flat you know <laughs> coat on come on let's get a move on it's amazing how energizing that could be but what worries me nowadays is that Uh, there are so few it's so difficult to get into a treatment program to get a detox. Uh, It's, it's just, if you haven't got money, it's almost, and that really depresses me. And uh, I was very proud of the rehab. I did run in that we always had uh, free beds Um, and I was, I'm I'm really proud that I did that uh, and that there was part of the ethos of the, of the rehab that I ran. And, but it, I don't know anywhere that does it nowadays, and I really, you know, I work. I, I, I have people come to see me who want to get better, who do want to change. And I, it's it's really depressing. I have to say, have you got any money? You know, can you afford £15,000? Because that's what it's going to cost you. And, uh, the, you know, otherwise go to your local drug service who are going to be overworked, caseloads, 35, 40 each person who's working there, very little in the way of options they can give you. You know, you might drop in and see them for 20 minutes every two weeks. I mean, I I despair at the level of services. As you say, there are a lot of services out there, a lot of things out there, there's a lot of information out there, but it's not translating into hard beds where people can go and get better. And that really bothers me.
0: Do you think that our uh, definitions of uh, what an addict is have have changed? Because I see in society, you know, obviously you've described yourself as someone who was a long-term habitual user of all drugs, imprisoned, living in a squat, all of the things that, you know, were the traditional sort of stereotypes about a so-called junkie. Sure. Um, myself and a lot of people who i've who i've got to know in through my recovery were much more kind of seemingly holding down uh, a, a superficially respectable middle class family lifestyle sure. you know um but completely dependent on alcohol and drugs secretly and uh but it was so part of the culture that we perhaps worked or lived in that it was much harder to identify ourselves as having a problem, yeah. uh, much harder to acknowledge it. And in many ways, society won't let you acknowledge it, because if you do, then you're sort of calling everyone else around you an yeah. addict. <laughs> yeah, um, This is a big problem. I'm sure it's always been a big problem. Um, do you think things are changing around that? Do you think that people are... I don't. I don't know whether we need to encourage people to sort of regard themselves as addicts or, or as problems. But but you see what I mean. Have I do. I, our yeah.
1: I mean, it, it it has changed. I mean, when I was using, I don't know how many. When I got registered as an addict uh, in the seven early seventies, I think there were, I think there were four thousand registered addicts in the country, um, and now there's quarter of a million. On the, on the books of drug services. So that whole thing has exploded. So, yes, I used to be part of a sort of very small gang of people who were noticeably on the outskirts of society. And, you know, yes, uh, over the period of the last 30, 40 years, drug use has become, you know, it's not unusual. You could almost see somebody racking up a line of coke in a pub and doing it, and nobody mm. would really do much. You know, that would have been... You know, when I was using, there used to be, if you went to a party, there'd be one dark room where all the addicts would, in it would be, you know, entry to that room would be kind of, you know, very, very badge of honour. But nowadays, everybody's smoking weed. Everybody's smoking weed. Lots of people are doing, drinking that kind of drink, Coke mixture. And as I say, you know, it wouldn't be, I think you could rack up a line of Coke. But the landlord might say, oi, you know, cut that out, but oh yeah, you you could get away with it. You could get
0: yeah, football you... matches. I've been at a football match uh, a few times, even this season and quite young kids next to me, young kid turned to me, I was chatting to him. I could see he was off his face. And he said, you don't mind if we do coke, do you? Yeah. And I went, no. And he went, do you want some? And he offered me, it was during the game in a big yeah. famous stadium. He offered me some on a, on a card. And I said, no, no, I don't. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an addict. I don't, you know, th- yeah. th- thanks all the same, but no, Thanks. And it was just, and I thought, bloody hell, I didn't use I mean, that's more prevalent. I didn't used to see that when I was no. using And no. that happens a lot at football and in pubs now.
1: It does. And people openly smoking and, and you know, and of course, obviously, people have been openly drinking for years. But, I mean, uh, in terms of drug use, it's become, and there is a kind of, you know, what you were saying about the term addict there, there is a sort of slight cheapening of the word. You know, mm. to me, addiction is a very serious business. You know, mm. it's life and death, and I have seen many, many people die, uh, and I find it, you know, very distressing. That, uh, but there is a slight cheapening of kind of oh well, you know, I'm a chocolate addict, or I'm a coffee addict, or I'm a, you know, uh, I'm a whatever. They've just slightly cheapened the, the phraseology of it, and and I think it that is doesn't do us any favors because. Uh, addiction to drugs or alcohol is a really serious problem and you know and it it it, it kills people and uh, mm. I it's it's a kind of a yin and a yang it's at one level it's really good that we are having discussions about the whole nature of dependency the whole way in which kind of the brain reacts to stimulus and all those kind of things but at the same time uh, I, I don't like to see it Cheapened to the point where any kind of behavior that you do more than once is considered to be an addiction. Mm. So I think it's a bit of a uh, it's my washing machine going in the background. In <laughs> Hello, problem. Um, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so I think uh, there is a good discussion. I think that there's a, I mean, I'm seeing what I'm seeing, I'm at a government level, as I said. Maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there was a really big kind of thought: we've got to do something about this. I think now they just feel it's overwhelmed; it's not worth the money, and they're putting less and less money, making less and less money available. And uh, I think that's going to be uh, it's going to backfire because all the services are overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's yes, you're right. I mean, there are so many options now. I mean, you run a podcast, I'm part of a podcast, there's all kinds of podcasts, there's online groups, there's, uh, there's in-person support groups of all kinds of things. But uh, the drug problem is getting worse. And as you said, drug use is now so commonplace that a stranger can offer you coke in a football match, and not even bat an eyelid. Mm. That tells you that the whole culture of coke and not, of, of drug use is just part of the fabric of society now, and it's becoming as commonplace as alcohol almost. And uh, yeah, I find that I find that depressing for young do you, people particularly.
0: Do, do you think that that's as a result of the society we live in and the so and the culture we live in today? you know, things have changed and and driven more of us into those kind of bad behaviours?
1: I think there is a certain malaise about, I mean, if we're going to get a bit deep about it, then I do think there is a sort of a malaise. You know, you look around you, if you're not in a high-end job, you're on minimum wage, zero-hour contract, The world's looking pretty bloody bleak. It doesn't look, you know, I would be really concerned about bringing a child into the world at this stage. I think, well, what would I bring the child into? I think, and I think when you have those kind of slight existential problems going on, I think it does uh, exacerbate drug use because I think people think, Soddy, you know, what, what's the point? You know, it's this looks pretty bleak out there, and I'm really struggling. Drugs are incredibly cheap. Um, there's a whole supermarket of drugs available now, and, any, you know, anywhere you want to go now, you can get them. I, just, I do think there is a, 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 a sort of slight malaise amongst particularly young people who are really kicking into quite heavy drug use at a very early age. You know, before they're twenty, and uh, and I find that move depressing, uh, and 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 combine that with the, the 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 poor services that are out there, I I think it's it's just a a, a recipe for disaster. But you know, we were, you know, uh, Aldous Huxley was telling us about this in Brave New World years ago about you know, just just drug the population and they'll and they'll get on with it and uh, they'll just put up with anything. And I, 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 you know, I don't want to get away from the kind of real personal sort of stories of people's addiction, but I do think there is a, there's a, who cares? There's a kind of who cares. Mm. So people, you know, the fact of the matter is many, many more people die of alcohol uh, conditions. I mean, 10, 20,000 people die a year from alcohol. you less than a, maybe a thousand from drugs. You know, so is that a serious problem? Not really. There's more people die of peanut allergy probably during the course of a year. You know, is that a problem that the government are really going to address? Not really. Does it suit them to have an apathetic population probably. you know, but those are kind of big societal problems, but at there, the same
0: there's, time- a, there's a, I mean, obviously you know this, but one thing that the government because uh, I agree with 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 your analysis there, but the public health cost, the cost to, even if you were completely unemotional about it and you just looked at the economic cost, the the productivity cost, the cost in crime and all of those other things of people living miserable lives that might not kill them, might not even drive them to extremes like prison or unemployment, but really does make them and the people around them really miserable. That does have practical impacts on society. They're even a cold-hearted sort of... But you know, politician who is only interested in the balance sheets. Yes, <coughs> it would affect.
1: Yeah, but if you demonise the addict, mm. uh, then you can sort of do a governmental cost benefit analysis and come it comes up. But the problem is, as you quite rightly said, for everybody with a drug problem, there are six or seven people: family members, parents, siblings, siblings wives, husbands, whatever, who are whose lives are completely torn apart by that behaviour, who are not working properly, who are not living properly, who are not enjoying themselves because they're constantly worried about this person who's on the verge of killing themselves. And, you know, that's, as you said, that's a huge cost. It's not just the cost of the addict who does get demonised. It's the, the, the cost of the, all those other people who are not enjoying life who are not you know who are not they're probably presenting to the health services and their gps with depression and anxiety and all these things as you quite rightly say they have a huge cost but if you if you it suits people to condense it down to just this is what the addict costs us let's not bother to look at the impact on the family and the and and the and the children and the cost of you know bringing up going through i mean i've i've been part of of trying to support addicts you know with childcare issues and and uh and, and child protection and things like that and you know the cost involved in kind of getting one child away from an addict or an addict is huge and, and all these things have a massive cost addiction does cost us a lot not and i think uh There, there is so much more drug use now. Uh, I I mean, obviously, as you can probably pick up, I'm quite pessimistic about the whole situation, about the amount that society and young people in particular rely on drugs, and the lack of services available to support them when they, if they make the decision to think, actually, do you know what? I want to stop doing this, because if somebody was to do that they'd really struggle to get help.
0: I just want to ask you a little bit about what it is that, you know, on the other side of your addiction and, you know, once you've been through recovery and managed to get sober, what it was that drove you into this
1: line of work? Um, <laughs> it was, I, I enjoyed my time in rehab. I had, for the first time in my life, I felt I belonged to a family. Never had had that before, and I was in with this group of people. We all, you know, there was that kind of lovely communal feeling that you get being amongst people who understand you and get your story. And I really enjoyed rehab, and I threw myself into it. I mean, I might have had a relationship in rehab, which you're not supposed to have done. But that aside, I was a good student, if you like, Mm. and I. Enjoyed the whole kind of group therapy process. You know, I, I enjoyed the way that people opened up and I enjoyed opening up and I enjoyed kind of learning about my emotions and feelings. And I enjoyed that process. And I can remember speaking, and God bless her, uh, to one of the uh, counselors there towards the end of my time. And I, you know, I was, I'd done about 12 weeks, I think, you know, so I had a good spell at it. And I said, I really enjoy doing this. I think I'd like to do that. And she said, I think you're good at it. I think you should do that. But go away for a bit. Live your life. Don't do it yet. Wait a year or two. Live your life. And, and But I think you should do it. And she kind of really validated my belief. And she really encouraged me. And <clears throat> I really thank her for that. Because I know other people would have said, oh, who do you think you are? You know, just get, get back in your box. But she was encouraging and I did go away and I did, uh, I did some pretty shitty jobs, but, you know, I was working, which was in itself a novel experience for me. I was 37 and really never really worked in my life. So I was working, uh, cleaning carpets and uh, just doing pretty ropey jobs, but it was all right. I was working and that was great. And then when I was a year clean, I started training and uh, I started doing my academic work alongside a placement and uh, and I loved it. I've just, I've loved every minute of, I mean, I've been working a long time, been working 36 years now and I've loved every day of it. I have loved uh, just being part of a process that is helping people Change helping people get their lives back. I mean, how few jobs are there where you can see somebody literally crawl into your establishment and two months later walk out with their family with the opportunity and the chance to live their life to its fullest? There are not many jobs that give you that kind of opportunity, and it's a real I mean, it's a cliche and it's a, sounds a bit trite, but it's a real privilege to work in that, you know. And mm. and I don't you know, I know that not everybody gets it, but I believe wholeheartedly that if you treat everybody with respect and kindness, even if they don't get it the first time round, they will remember that respect and kindness, and they'll come back again the next time. And uh, and I've I, I've really enjoyed my work. I I, I, I you know, of course, there've been some difficult, but it just suits me. Uh, uh, you know, I feel that it's sort of a natural fit for me to be doing this kind of work, uh, and I just, I just love it. And I mean, I'm getting on now, and I, I do not want to stop working. I just, you know, I've got a practice in London, and I, 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 I wish to continue doing it. And I just, I just love this whole seeing people get their lives back. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing to be part of.
0: I mean, it's great just hearing you talk about. It. I can't imagine what a thrill that must be, and and the, the, you know, it must help you a lot with your own recovery and your own mental health. Because no matter what else is going on, it, it must be such an incredible feeling to see people that you've helped.
1: Yes, I mean, they when when I first started working in the field, it, uh, you know, there were a lot of professionals who would dismiss you because you had had this addictive past mm. they were i mean i've i've given talks to doctors and once they knew uh, i had had it they would just dismiss me completely wow. uh, that is not the case nowadays that uh, people that kind of lived experience is seen to be a really uh, a really good thing but uh i mean i uh i am so uh i think that uh that whole opportunity is is uh i, I mean i can i, I sometimes i get I look on Facebook or something, or I talk to my wife who's worked alongside me a lot uh, throughout my career. And uh I and we go, Oh my God, look at that. And you look at somebody and they're out walking and they're healthy, and you can't do you, remember, do you remember what they were like when they first came in? And and oh my god, yeah. And, and oh they were, you know, and there's one particular person I can think of, I mean, just well, there are so many people, but I mean it is a, just to be part of that process. It's 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 lovely, and you know, of course, all the work is done by you know. You can set the scene and you can make the environment as as kind and as helpful as possible, but never forget, it's the people that do the work. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they they they're the they're the ones. But if you can, if you can give people, I mean, I have a a quote attached to my computer, and it really is. Uh, It's by Goethe, and uh, uh, it's if you treat an individual as he is, he will remain how he is. But if you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and could be, he will become what he ought to be and could be. Mm. And, you know, I, I think so many people who work in the sort of statutory services they are very dismissive of addiction. They don't really care. Um, A lot of them haven't got that lived experience, which is so, as you quite rightly said at the start, is so important. You know, it's so vital to have that, oh, you understand me. You Mm. get why, you know, I behave like that. You get that. You're not just sort of treating me like a guinea pig who, well, let's try him on this drug and see how he gets on with that. You're actually trying to engage with me and understand me. And I think... Uh, certainly, uh, as I said, when I first started working, uh, people like me who had had an addiction past were, it was an uphill struggle, you know, because nearly every, it wasn't, we weren't accepted as being useful. Uh, uh-huh. And actually what you said earlier on, it just reminded me, you know, uh, people used to say, oh, well, you know, all you're doing is you're just, st- you're just staying in the problem. You're not. Mm. You're not. You've not moved on. You're just living in addiction still. You know everybody around you is addiction, and you know, yeah, there's a there, there, there's some truth in that. But uh, but I mean, uh, I have found it to be uh, really helpful, and not just. I, mean, I don't. I don't find my work help. I mean, it, it is. I suppose it is quite. It is a little reminder every day. You kind of see people walk in and you think, oh, my God, I used to be like that. So, yes, that does encourage me. I'm at the cold face, so I do see people die and the consequences of using. So, yes, that does encourage me to stay clean, Um, but uh, I'm not there. Because of that is part of my recovery package. You know, I think, oh, well, what's good? For, oh, I'll work with really desperate people, and that will make me feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's part of the deal, but mm. it's not why I do the work. I do the work because it just feels like. It, I, I, I'm a bit sort of reluctant to say this, but people treated me with kindness, and I got my life back. And I've now had. I've been. I've been clean. Now, longer than I, I was 37 when I got clean. And that had been a pretty shitty 37 years. I've now been clean exactly the same length of time. And I've so my life has been split. And I've had the opportunity to lead a beautiful life. You know, I love my life. I, I mean, I'm in, a, I'm in a house that me and my wife own so beyond my wildest dreams it's incredible i mean i own a house for christ's sake i mean uh it's incredible i've got a car outside i've got little toys and trinkets and things that (laughs) i i mean it's lovely i mean there's not a day goes by when i don't wake up and go oh my god it's good to be alive you know Mm. there are some days which are pretty crap you know and uh i hate that saying that says uh in the 12th that says something like you're I don't know what it is. Your worst day using is, but be- your best day is your best day using is better than the worst day in recovery or something like that. Yeah. bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah,
0: yeah. I
1: had some wonderful days using. I had some great days. <laughs> I had a lot of crap ones, but I had some great days, and I've had some absolutely awful days in recovery. <laughs> Terrible days. You know, weeping for three days because uh, three weeks, not three days. I wish it had not been three days because I've been abandoned by some woman, mm. uh, which did happen. Um, and uh, I've had a just, I just love life. And I am, unfortunately, I'm now getting to the stage of my life where I've got to start thinking about it actually ending, which, which is, does make me, you know, I don't, I, I will not go gently into the light. <laughs> I, I will go kicking and screaming into the light because it's just so, it's such a, for me, it's a bit of a mind mess because, uh, you know, I had so much despair, so much loneliness, so little hope. And the other half of my life has been filled with enthusiasm and excitement and 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 all because I stopped using drugs. That's all. You know, just stop using drugs. And actually everything else started falling into place. So yeah, I'm very I'm a very happy customer of recovery. Very happy. (laughs) I can see how
0: you've helped so many people because just listening to you talk, I'm I'm genuinely sat here with a big smile on my face because I can hear that kind of joy and the positivity. You've obviously got an extremely sort of down to earth way of talking about these things, which is, you know, can be can be quite rare in the sort of recovery community sometimes. Um, Because there is a lot of sort of jargon and stuff that can put people off. But there's also, um, you talk about kindness and there's a huge amount of warmth as well. And you've mentioned kindness so many times. I don't like to get philosophical in particular on this podcast, but it does strike me that, you know, love is often, love and kindness are the antidote to addiction. Um, and, you know, you talk about your life uh, and your childhood and, you know, how bleak it was in terms of lack of love or connection or anything like that. And it's so common that that is the backstory of people who fall into any sort of addiction, even if it's not narcotic or alcoholic, you know, because yeah. they, they're just trying to distract themselves. And the more I hear you speak, and it's something that I've often sort of thought myself, is that it just seems like the simple weapon is, is love and kindness is the sort of, is the way to fight this stuff.
1: Completely. Addiction and alcohol has got absolutely nothing to do with drugs and alcohol. Mm. It's got to do with a lack of love and kindness. I have never had a client sit in front of me, nor known anybody I ever used with, who take the drugs away and they are happy, they've got a great relationship, they've got a great job, they love it, you know, they've got prospects. I've never met that person. Mm. Every person I've ever met, they've got dysfunction. They've got a messy family history. They've got an absent father. They've got a lack of love. They've got chaos. Um, And, you know, obviously because of their behavior, they've got a whole lot of shame and stuff like that. That's the stuff that needs to be dealt with. Drugs and, you know, if it was was about the substances, I'd just get a big warehouse somewhere in the country, stick 100 addicts in there, wait four weeks, go back again, let the door open and get them all out and they'd all be fine. Of course they wouldn't be. They wouldn't have a clue because they need, you've got to give those people, and myself as well, that love and kindness that makes them, that tries to repair the damage because every client I've ever had has been damaged goods in one form or another. And, you know, sometimes that damage can be really severe. Sometimes that damage... Can be lesser, but for the person concerned, it's enough. And and it, you know, you don't have to be homeless to to kind of qualify as damaged. You can be just neglected and in a in a pr- very privileged background. You know, like I went had a privileged background, but within that privilege, as I said at the start, there was a lot of dysfunction, very very abusive and dysfunctional behaviour. And I think, as you know, to to really emphasise that point. I don't think addiction has got anything to do with the substances. It doesn't really matter whether it's opiates or weed or ketamine. It doesn't matter. The person underneath those drugs is always the same type of person, someone who needs connection, who needs affection, love, kindness. And if you can provide that, you're going to engage somebody. Chip,
0: um, it's incredible to hear you speak on this subject it's inspirational and like i say it's just put a smile on my face and i hope it has uh helped listeners too i'm sure i'm sure it will have done and like i say, I can hear you speak and see why and how you've helped so many people throughout the course of your career i'm really grateful of you spending time to speak to me on the reset it's fantastic it's
1: been it's been really kind. it's been I, i've I'm pleased I was able to get, because it, it, I don't often get the opportunity to be as enthusiastic as I like to be about recovery. And it was really nice to be able to be, to be so, because that's how I feel. I feel genuinely enthusiastic and, you know, I would encourage anybody to... To give it a go, you know, at least give it a fair crack. You know, two days isn't a fair crack. Give it, a, give it a while, see what happens. And uh, I'm pretty sure I can almost guarantee, you know, that if you give it a fair crack and let people help you and become part of a, a community of some kind, your life will get better.
0: I totally agree. I'm buzzing just from this this forty minutes we've spent talking. Um, uh, and I totally agree with everything you say, Chip, <laughs> Chip Summers. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you very much, sir. Well, there you go, Chip Summers. What an extraordinary communicator! It's not just what he says, but the way in which he says it that's strangely comforting. I think the ability to express ideas and dissect these big, complex subjects in such a down-to-earth and relatable way is a rare skill. I can see how he's helped so many people get their lives back, and I think his focus on love and kindness as the antidote to addiction is just fantastic. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you want to know more about Chip, check out his website at chipsommers.com and also the Soberful podcast, which he co-hosts with another of my former guests, Veronica Valley. Remember also to subscribe to the Reset newsletter for free at samdelaney.substack.com and follow me on Twitter at DelaneyMan. Until next time, gang, thanks for listening. Be lucky. And don't let the dickheads get you down.